0: I was going to say open your hymn books, but you have no, you can't. Uh, Would you please stand and we will sing the first two stanzas of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There we go. As I've mentioned many, many times in the chapel when we talk about the hymns, every hymn has a story beyond the fact that it's a useful tool for for teaching Christian doctrine, which is the purpose of hymnody, uh, and especially to teach us what God has done for us and what God has done for us in Christ. And this hymn is an example of that. Uh, comes to us from a couple of different sources. Uh, First thing I want you to think about is what you do for your countdowns to Christmas. Maybe you have, over the years, had an Advent calendar where you open up the little box every day and you get a piece of chocolate or something. That's always a nice thing. Uh, Or an Advent wreath. Or, well, even just the process of getting the houses ready for Christmas putting up a tree. Who does it? Who brings a tree into their house in the middle of the winter? What a strange thing, right? Have you ever thought about how odd that is? And then when we don't want to bring a real tree in, we bring in one that's made of plastic, which is even odder. But <laughs> the symbolism remains the same. There's all this preparation that we do for Christmas. And this particular hymn grew out of that spirit of the countdown to Christmas. Uh, you'll see it's, it, it's called, at the, when you look at the upper, uh, this is the left side, Upper left side, that is telling us where the text comes from. And it gives us a clue, but it's a very, a very small clue. This, this is va- based on um, seven verses that are called the Great O Antiphons. And they're called that because, each, because they were O come, O come, O come. That was, that was the, the point of them. Now, where did they develop? they didn't develop for use necessarily in a public Christian congregation. They were used in the monasteries. Uh, If you were a a monk or a nun living in an abbey or a convent or something, uh, you were expected to maintain this cycle of daily worship. We refer to it as the daily office, but uh, if you divide 24 hours into uh, breaks of three hours, that comes down to eight. And in some monastic traditions, eight times a day, the entire community had to gather, very much like our daily chapel, for 20 minutes a half hour for, for prayer and preaching and, and singing, uh, except they did it a, a, a lot during the day. That was their main purpose. If you were a monk or nun, your main reason for being in the monastery, in the best of all purposes, was to, to worship God and to pray, and that was, that was what the daily office did. Well, one of the parts of the daily office is a service called Vespers which we still maintain to some degree in the Lutheran tradition. And part of Vespers was always the singing of Mary's canticle, the Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's a wonderful, wonderful New Testament hymn uh, given to us uh, by inspiration in in the scripture. Uh, Well, of course, Mary sang it, and uh, it's a great hymn. That was a part of Vespers that never changed. They always sang the Magnificat, they always sang the Magnificat. Doesn't matter what time of the year it was, what day of the week it was, it was always there. So it it went into their heads. But one of the things they would do in the monastic worship to make things more in tune with the season of the church year, uh, they would write these little antiphons. Now how an antiphon works, it's similar to what we do when we sing our psalms back and forth that, that uh, there is a refrain that we use that kind of highlights that particular emphasis of the psalm text. So it, 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 takes, it takes the text of the psalm, but makes us think about one thing specifically. And the antiphon is a little bit like that, except it isn't sung after every verse. It's only sung at the beginning and at the end. It's like, it's like a liturgical sandwich where you have a slice of bread here and a slice of bread here and then the magnificat in the middle. And they did that with all of the canticles, uh, that they would have these antiphons. Well, this was, this was a, kind of an important series of texts because they showed up seven days, you see we have seven stanzas here, seven days before Christmas Eve. So it would end, the practice of the great O antiphons would end on December 23rd. But when the O antiphons started the previous week, it's a remind was a huge reminder that, that Christmas was close the, the coming of Christ was near, and uh, that's, that's where the text came from, that's where the text came from. Of course, it was a Latin text, and, uh, and quite old, we call it medieval, um, maybe as the text is maybe as old as the 11th century, but of course nobody has a video, so we don't know. Uh, let's, uh, okay, now I have to talk a little bit about the text itself. One of the things that makes this an interesting text is that it uses very, very clear scriptural imagery. Uh, if we had the time, we could go through every single verse and we could find the, a scriptural reference for it. So they were not ignoring the Bible, but they were making it very, very lively uh, for the people who were singing this antiphon. Uh, the, the next verse, okay, the, 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 the passage about wisdom, you know, that comes from where? Book of Proverbs, Right? And, uh, and what it does is it is designed, the text is designed using many, many, many images from the Old Testament to remind us and to remind those who sang it originally that the Christ who is coming in Bethlehem had been active among his people from the dawn of creation. And we, we remember that from John 1, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word had been there, since before the beginning. Uh, and, And so what this text reminds us of is that, even in the Old, not just the prophecies, the prophecies, of course, of Christ are very, very important, but it's the fact that Christ was there in the Old Testament among his people, Israel, already with his message of forgiveness and new life. So we'll look now at stanzas three and four. We'll sing those. Uh, And here, again, it's the idea that it is the Christ in the manger who is there on Mount Sinai, speaking through the burning bush and giving the law to Moses. And then Jesse's stem, the rod of Jesse's stem, that of course points to the fact that he is uh, the son of David, a great king, come to deliver, and and, uh, what does he do? He gives victory now over the grave. So let's do stanzas three and four. You can remain seated. This is not my deal, in case you haven't figured that out. <laughs> I can turn on my computer, and that's, that's an accomplishment. Um, how does the text then come to us in, in English? During the 19th century, that'd be the 1800s uh, for us, there was in the Church of England uh, a revival of, of the faith, of the Trinitarian Confession, and an attempt to reestablish the church as an authority in culture. Because by that time, you know, we'd lived through uh, the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution and all that kind of stuff. Europe was in, in, a, in a mess, the, uh, in, in terms of, especially in terms of theology. Most of the universities were teaching a, a, a doctrine of theological rationalism if they talked about God at all, which maybe emphasized the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But there was really no need for Christ in that picture. And certainly no need for redemption or the sacraments or, or a, 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 a ministry of, of pastors. That all seemed very medieval. And what happened is, in the 1830s, there was a rebirth in the Church of England that said, wait a minute, there was a time when the Christian church was the center of culture. The the Christian church was the determining factor. It took care of the poor. It fed the hungry. It was the universities, everything. that was all under the umbrella of the church. We need to bring that back. The days when the church was the strongest and the days when the church was the center of the culture, uh, the pillar of civilization, the foundation of, of civilization. And so one of the things they did, of course, is that they looked back in time to when the church was that way. And a lot of them, landed with this idea of, again, the medieval time when the the church was the the glue that held the the civilization together. So they longed for that, they yearned for that kind of spirit again in the church. And one of the things they did, in addition to uh, uh, teaching again many of the Orthodox Christian doctrines, like I mentioned, the Trinity and things like that, uh, the the atonement of Christ, all that, which had fallen by the wayside. Uh, They also looked, again, to create uh, the spirit of the church from those days of gone by. So one of the things they did is, well, it it spilled over into the world of art which was very interesting. They started to design churches, they would build new churches but they made the churches look like they were built in the 13th century. So if you travel around and you, even in our own country, if you drive down the hill and you drive past St. Peter's and Paul's church. That doesn't look like something that was built in the Midwest in the 1870s, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's this, this mini-Gothic church. And that they love that, they love that. They also felt that one of the things they needed to do was to bring into the church hymnody, the texts that the people from the Middle Ages sang. And so what they would do, and they put them together in, in, in books that were called, well, one of the, the most famous one was called Hymns, Ancient and Modern. They loved the word ancient because if there was something that had enough age to it and dust to it, uh, it it represented the church when it was there at the center of the culture. Um, And so some of the many, many hymns from from Latin were translated into English at that time so that the English-speaking congregation could share in the spirit of those Christians from the Middle Ages. It's a very romantic notion, but that was the 19th century, right? You know, especially the first part of it. and. One fellow in particular, his name was John Mason Neal. Now he's not given attribution here at at this time because he didn't translate the whole thing. He brought three of the stanzas into English. The the, the rest of them came a little bit later. Uh, But he was fluent in about seven modern languages and fluent in about 12 dead languages. He had a tremendous gift, not just as a translator but as a poet. Because he could create things, you know, it's one thing to be a translator. It's another thing to give people a text that is beautiful that they want to sing or read again. So John Mason Neal translates this from the Latin, and it becomes, well, it's not an overnight hit, but it becomes a, a, a very big hit, especially when it gets paired with this melody. This melody is not the melody that they used when they sang it as one of the O Antiphons. It's, it's a, it's, you see on the melody side, it says French processional from the 15th century. Oddly enough, the melody itself comes from the funeral liturgy of the Roman church. It's, it, it was not an advent melody. But along the way, Neil, who also was a, a, a he, he was all about old dusty manuscripts, so he, he could read the, the melodies too. These things come together gradually, slowly. And uh, so what we have here, is a, a funeral melody with a translated Latin text for the hopefulness of Advent. I, I think that's a real interesting story. It's, and the other thing that's interesting about this, of course, is that it's an example of one of the hymns from the church that has really has found its way into the fiber of the culture. You know? You've got to listen to the Carpenters' Christmas album and there it is. And it's, it's all over the place. Everybody knows this tune. Well, not everybody, but everybody who's anybody. Uh, so uh, it's a great gift that the church has given us from ages past. And again, when we sing these hymns, not only are we singing the words that were written by people so long before us, but we're singing them at the same time to one another. So it's a living, breathing way to build up, to edify the uh, community of Christ. So stand up and we'll finish by singing the final three stanzas.